0: As we open our Bibles, we also open our hearts that these words of truth may fall upon the very fabric of our lives. May these ancient scriptures come alive within us to inspire, to heal, to cleanse, to teach, to restore, and to guide our hearts and minds. Lord, come weave your words of life in us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our heavenly Father, amen. Now for the reading of the word. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you. Hey, thanks for that moment with, uh, oh, you can leave that up there. Thanks. Thanks for that moment. Uh, I'll actually talk a little bit more about Sarah and the sermon, but I'm just, where did she go? Oh, she's back there. Well, I'm really proud of her. So, and uh, in the the most, I couldn't have written a book like that. So proud of you, Sarah. Yeah. Well, anyway, how many of us have heard of the Great Resignation? Have you guys heard about it? I probably talked about it in like every sermon over the last two years because I just struck by it. Um, You know, when COVID hit in 2020, all kinds of people started quitting their jobs. In fact, it was like millions of people every month. Maybe some of you have quit your jobs. Maybe you're part of the Great Resignation but all these people just kinda, something snapped, something clicked for them and they're like, I don't wanna do this job anymore. You know, there's a, there's a song from like the 1970s called Take This Job and Shove It and they started playing it on the radio, I remember. It's a great song, you should all look it up. Take this job and shove it. It's a country song, big country. Um, but how many of you know that the Great Resignation is still happening? Two plus years later, in fact, in 2022, an average of four million people a month in America are quitting their jobs. So just to add, we're seven months into the year now. That's 28 million people have quit this year. If we're, if anyone's counting, that's uh, like 10% of the U.S. population has quit their jobs. Um, and 40 to 60% of people in a recent survey said that they're. Seriously, considering quitting in the next three to six months. So we're not sure what it means. F- folks, don't, what, what exactly does this mean? What does it mean that everyone's quitting? But I think one thing that everyone is agreed on is that our culture and our society for a long time have needed a new kind of relationship with work. Amen? It's what we're, the way we're working isn't working. And so here at Sanctuary, we've been sp- spending the summer exploring this theme and this topic of rest, and um, rest as a gift from God, rest as essential to our human humanness. And we've been looking at the Psalms to give us a guide of how can we find rest, this critical, this important thing. Um, we've been talking about how dwelling in the Word of God brings rest how we, how we can find rest in the middle of trouble. Um, we've talked about how Jesus and many of the spiritual giants of the past uh, pursued rest, how they stilled and quieted themselves. Uh, Elizabeth Achilles, she's in the room somewhere, talked about um, how Jesus brings us eternal rest, offers us eternal rest. And last week, Pastor Dexley shared about finding rest in the church, in the people of God. So let me tell you what I'm curious about uh, as it comes to this topic of rest. I'm wondering, is it possible to find rest in our work? Is it possible for our work to be restful? And let me tell you kind of why this is important to me. I, am, I, am, I have worked for an organization called InterVarsity for 20 years, and I'm in a transition, and I'm transitioning partly to staff here at Sanctuary, woo and um, starting a new ministry venture with the rest of my time. And so I'm in the middle of a vacation slash sabbatical that wraps up today. It's my last, this is my first day back to work, right? And many of us, as we prepare to enter August, as as as, as terrible as this is, it's kind of like, well, August is kind of summer, but not for long, right? And September's coming. Some of you are in the academic world. Uh, and we know that things heat up as we enter, move towards September. And so I want to know what happens when we go back to work. My vacation is ending. And what now? Is rest gone? Is, can, is there any way that we can avoid the exhaustion and the burnout that has led to the great resignation. Now, some of you are saying, Greg, finding rest in your work, that's an oxymoron. That is a contradiction in terms. Rest and work are like black and white, up and down, left and right, near and far. Like they're totally different, but are they? Are they really all that different? In fact, I would say that the Bible does not see an inherent contradiction between work and rest. So Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. And a yoke, of course, in the ancient Near East was a symbol of work. Take my yoke, take my, the symbol of work upon you, And you will find rest for your souls. And so somehow these two things maybe can go together. They're they're actually not in opposition. Work is not our problem. Our problem, work is a good thing. God created work. Work is good for us. Work existed in the Garden of Eden. Adam, name the animals. That was work, right? Adam, say no to Satan. That was work. And work will exist in The end as well. It will exist at the end of history. Um, But what was damaged in the fall is our relationship with work. Our relationship with work became toxic, became exhausting and toilsome. But what if there was a way for our work to be restful? Even making things on the assembly line, even washing dishes, even cooking dinner, changing diapers, driving in rush hour traffic, clearing your inbox, building the website and the slide decks, making rounds in the hospital, writing sermons, buying apartments, flipping burgers, buying groceries. What if all of these things, could, we could actually find rest? How would that change our lives? How would that change the world around us? And so this morning, we wanna look at Psalm 127. This was written by Solomon. The king, most likely, who actually oversaw two of the biggest work projects in ancient Israel, one of which was the building of the temple. And so this psalm was meant to be a song sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to worship and potentially, I don't know, build the temple. And it is a reflection on our work from God's perspective. And I believe that if we allow this scripture to inform the way we understand our work, it will lead us to experience rest, even as we're working. Amen? So I want to look at a few insights from this psalm. Are you with me? And then uh, talk about how we can find rest in our work. So here's the first insight. In fact, this is kind of the main insight. In fact, maybe there's only one real insight from from this. And I want you to turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you to tell them you are not in control. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, you are not in control. And this is the insight. We are not in control, friends. You're not. I know some of that, for some of you, that just freaks you out. But you're not in control. God is in control. And the scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, The workers labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stand watch in vain. And so it's so important to understand this. The scripture is not saying we don't have work to do, we don't have a role to play, we don't have important stuff that we're supposed to participate in. But unless God's work undergirds our work, unless God builds the house, our work is in vain. And that word vain is Shave or sha uh, And it, it really is actually, it's where the word for the shoah, the, the holocaust comes from. It's emptiness, vanity, waste. It's a waste. It's worthless. And so we're not in control, friends. We can sock money away in the stock market or in Bitcoin Right? But we are not in control of what happens to the stock market or Bitcoin. Sorry if you invested in Bitcoin. We can work on our resume, but we are not in control of whether we get hired. We can exercise and work out every day, but we are not in control of how long we live. And so I think if there's one lesson that I hope, I don't think it happened, but I think maybe God was trying to teach us through COVID it's that we're not in control, right? Do we have another wave? I don't know. I was hoping we'd be done, but we're not in control, are we? Could another wave could come. And as comforting as uh, it can feel to think you're in control, it's actually a harmful illusion. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, the illusion of control heaps on us a psychological weight that we were never meant to carry. And so, to find rest in our work, the first thing we have to do is to renounce and release the illusion of control. Again, not that we don't have a role to play, but God is in control. And I think at first, admitting that we're not in control of the outcome of our labor, the outcome of our work, is terrifying. But eventually, it is the key to our liberation, it's the key to our freedom. Because once we admit that we don't have control, we're actually able to begin trusting God. When we admit we're not in control, we actually are in a position to begin trusting God. Some of you may be feeling that this morning. Maybe life circumstances have made it obvious to you that you are not in control. And that can be a terrifying thing. But God's invitation is, now you gotta trust me. So if we're not in control, but God is, how do we trust God in our work? I want to share two practical ways that we can trust God. And by the way, as we do this, God is going to release rest even into our work. So the first is prayer. How, how many of you have ever got up in the morning, and maybe this is just me, but you look at your to-do list for the day. Does anyone make to-do lists? And you do a little calculation in your mind, and you realize, I actually have more things that I have to do than time to do them in. Is that just me? Does anyone ever feel that way? Okay, when that happens to you, you essentially have two options, in case you haven't thought about this. The first option, and this would be under the idea that you're in control of of everything is that you decide to work harder, get up earlier, stay up later, and start cranking and try to do everything. Okay? And how does that work for you? Does it ever work? If it works for you, I'd like to talk to you after the sermon. Okay, who wants to hear about option two? Option two is we can pray. We can go to God before we try to do anything on the list, and we can say, God, I can't do all this. This is too much for the day. So Lord, what do you want me to start with today? What would you like me to do first? And so often our first instinct when we think we're in control is to try to do it all. But what if we embrace the reality that we're, we can't, we're not in control, but that God is? That actually God has far more ability to affect the outcome of our work than we do. What if we spent less time trying to do all the things on our list and more time aligning our activity with God's? God, how can I join you today in what you're doing? What if we spent the first minutes of our day, of our work day, in prayer? Right? Maybe for you that has to be in the drive to the office or the factory? Or what if you have control over your work schedule? What if you set aside a certain amount of time to pray? You can call it whatever you want, executive time, white space, balcony time. But my, my work with, with InterVarsity fundamentally changed when I decided rather than just jumping into my day, I'm going to give God an hour to tell me what to do today to look at my to-do list with God. So then the cool thing about this is we're not in control, but God has influence over the things we can't control. Amen? And so John Wallace wrote, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Some of you uh, friends are uh, doctors. So what if as you go around uh, visiting exam rooms, I don't know what you guys do out there, because I'm sitting in there, I'm not sure what exactly is happening, totally. Is there a chart, is my chart hanging on the door? I don't know, but what if, what if as you're looking at the chart and taking my history and preparing, what if you just threw up a quick prayer to God for my health, you know? For, uh, not just me, but for all the patients. God, help me, help this person to be healed today. Help them to be healthy. And help me to know what to do. What if teachers in the room, how many teachers we got, as you're grading papers, okay, grading, the ultimate goal is, Lord, help these students to learn. Help, help them understand how to write better. Help them understand how to do math, uh, whatever it is. What if as you graded that paper, just spend a minute praying for each student? Unless the Lord helps the student understand, the teachers teach in vain. So it's to work more prayerfully. Martin Luther, I love this quote. He says, I have so many things to do today that I plan to spend the first three hours in prayer. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Now, maybe you don't have three hours, but what if you have 10 minutes? So the second way we can trust God and experience rest in our work is to sleep. At the proper time, when the, when the workday is over, whether all the work is done, and it probably isn't, we can stop working. We can sleep. And so the psalmist says, in vain you rise early. There's that word vain again. In vain you stay up late. And the, the scripture literally says, eating the bread of anxious toil. What a picture that is eating the bread of anxious toil. I know I've done that. And so if if we are in control, then we have to stay up. We have to work. We have to finish it. We have to meet the deadline. But if God is in control, we can sleep and trust that God is at work even as we sleep, even if the deadline is approaching fast, even if all the tasks aren't done. And so I'm not, I'm not saying don't work hard, I'm not saying be lazy, I'm not saying be negligent, but I'm saying that God wants us to work hard and then he wants us to rest and to sleep seven to nine hours a night. And parents of young children are laughing at me right now, I know. And I see you laughing wherever you are, parents of young children. I'll talk, have a thought for you in a minute. But scientists are only just beginning to understand the importance of our sleep. We actually can't work fruitfully or productively if we don't sleep. It's sometimes some of the best things in life come to us when we're sleeping. I was was just up in Boston. I don't know how I got hooked up with this, but my friend called me up and he's like, hey, I want to take you to see Paul McCartney. And so that's something that you don't say no to. And so as I was there in Fenway Park watching this concert, Paul McCartney was telling stories about his life. And I found out that one of the greatest songs ever written in the 20th century, yesterday, right? You guys ever heard that song? They made movies out of it. Do you know how Paul McCartney wrote that song? He didn't. He didn't write it. He heard it in his dream. And then he woke up, the next morning he went to John Lennon, he's like, hey, where have I heard this song? And John's like, I don't know. He went to George Harrison, he's like, where did I hear this song? I don't know. He went and started asking everyone, Mick Jagger, all his friends in London, where, and nobody knew the song. And then he realized, oh, I guess I wrote it. And it came to him in his sleep. So friends, God wants you to sleep. It's a gift he wants to give you. He wants you to have times where you stop working. He wants you to have a Sabbath. He wants to give you a Sabbath. He wants to give you meal times with your family or your friends or your home church. And some of us, this is hard. Maybe you work. Ben, where are you at? Your work schedule is going to change drastically, right? I'm praying for you, bro. Ben has the most chaotic work schedule coming up. But I, I don't think that means that God doesn't want you to rest, Ben. I just think you got to be creative about, about how that rest comes because he wants to give you rest. Um, as we begin the fall, where are we going to carve out space to rest? Um, you know, when I had kids, it actually forced me and Sarah to stop working during dinner time. or actually Sarah forced me and Sarah, to stop working during dinner. Sarah's a good leader in our family, and she made she said, we're gonna eat dinner together, and it was the hardest thing for me, because I used to work during that time, and it was, it was like withdrawal for me to let go of it, but it is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Family, family dinner, by the way, is an incredible, there's a statistical correlation between lower rates of teenage pregnancy and uh, lower rates of depression, uh, higher rates of children translating their faith into adulthood. And so if you're looking for a strategy for any of those things, try dinner. But ultimately, God wants to give us the gift, but we have to receive it, don't we? Like, he, he may want to give us the greatest gift ever, the gift of sleep, gift of rest, But it's up to us whether we're going to take him up on it. And to take him up on it requires faith. That he's in control of the universe and that you're not. So, reality friends, we're not in control. And releasing that illusion is the gateway to rest and freedom in our work. And so we can pray and we can stop because God is in control. Now, speaking of children... The psalmist turns his attention to children next. And you might, I, as I read this, I was like, what, so what do children have to do with this work stuff, building the house and guarding the city and toiling and eating the bread of anxious toil? And I believe that the psalmist is now trying to give us a picture of what this kind of work, this partnership with God looks like. If our work's not like laboring to build a house, or watchmen guarding a city, or working our fingers to the bone, staying up late, toiling. What is work like that's restful and in partnership with God? And I believe, a psalmist is saying, our partnership with God and work is like having children. Right? So follow me here. He says, children are a gift from the Lord. We cannot produce children in the same way that we crank out widgets on an assembly line amen children are a gift from God now there are things we do to make the children and they're lovely things but they're limited in their ability to achieve those results the actual process of a child being made Of those billions of cells dividing and differentiating, forming these organ systems that make up life, much less a personality and a soul. This is a profound and mysterious process that scientists have been studying for hundreds of years and don't fully understand. And even if we understand it, even if we can do the the gel ultrasound thing and see what's happening, we don't. We can't control it. And for some of us that have faced issues like infertility or miscarriage, we understand more than most how out of control we are in this process. And if that's you, I see you, and we see you, and the Lord sees you, but we're not in control. And yet, God, in His grace, in His kindness, enables human beings to be fruitful. And so, the birth of children is a metaphor. So, we had the book up here. In many ways, I think this is the most fruitful thing that our family, and by family, I basically mean my wife, has has ever done in ministry besides, you know, Noah and Silas. And, um, and so, it comes out August 2nd. It's on pre-order now at the back. Uh, <laughs> blah 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 there's my pitch but i'm so proud of sarah and this this book is incredible it's beautiful it's well written timely i believe it's going to be a gift to the church in the next season but i want to tell you that this is not sarah's book sarah delivered this book into the world but god put this book into sarah So years before this was ever written, God began sowing the seeds of this book into Sarah's life and soul and memory through her parents. And then as she came to this church, and there was nobody to do youth directing at the time, and Sarah was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to be the executive pastor, but I guess I'll fill in and do it. And as she began to work with children and parents, God began to put this this passion in her heart. And God gave Sarah the gift of creating all these tools. None of us can do that, but for some reason she can. And then God started sending prophets to Sarah, these men and women who heard from God and said, Sarah, God wants you to write a book. And Sarah says, who, me? Kind of like when, you know, the angel Gabriel came to Mary. How can this be? And finally, when Sarah was sleeping, and note, not awake, not being productive, but she was asleep, she had a dream. And in the dream, her mother was pregnant. Her mother in her old age, in her neurodegenerative terminal disease, was having a baby. And it would be Sarah's job to care for the baby. And as she woke up and told me about the dream, we both realized, this is a book. God wants you to write a book. And she said, there's no way I could do that. I couldn't write a book. And until she realized that God put that book within her. And Sarah worked very hard to deliver this book into the world, but God put it in her. And so friends, what are the dreams? What are the ideas that God has placed in you? What are the assignments God has given you? Sarah is special, but she's not unique. God, this is how he works. This is how he births fruitful things into the world. He places them in us. And yes, men, you can be pregnant too. Pregnant with the promises of God. And so for some of us, the invitation is, I don't know what God's doing with my life. Can you trust that as you rest, as you sleep, as you're faithful that God is sowing seeds of fruitfulness in your life. And there will be a season when those things are birthed into the world. And finally, the, the place I want to land is, I think the other reason the psalmist talks about children is to remind us that the ultimate fruit from our lives does not come from the stuff we Produce or make or type on a computer, but from the relationships that we invest in children are a heritage from the Lord Children are our legacy friends. We're not fruitful with our lives because we stay up toiling We're fruitful because God gives children We're not mandated in Genesis to be busy we're called to be fruitful and multiply. And we are fruitful and we multiply through relationships with other people, the people God has entrusted us with. And this fruit lasts beyond our lives. Now, for some of us, we have, biolog- we have biological children, right? Maybe we're a parent, we've adopted, or maybe we have adopted children, maybe we have foster children, maybe we have grandchildren. And so I think our invitation is in the midst of all of our work not to overlook the importance of our ministry to those children. John Wesley said, I learned more from my mother about Christianity than from all the theologians in England. So kids are not a nuisance. They're not an afterthought. I think God's calling some of our children to be the leaders of the next generation of revival, that our country needs. And so prioritize them, care for them, focus on them, spend time with them, be intentional about them. Now there are many of us here that don't have children, don't have biological children, or we can't, we struggled with that, or we're not married, maybe we wanna be married, maybe we don't, but here's what I wanna say To you, friends, God wants to give you children. And they don't have to be biological. And if you never have biological children, guess whose company you're in? Jesus was the most fruitful human being that ever walked the planet, and Jesus had no biological children. But we are all his children. The apostle Paul had no biological children mother Teresa had no biological children all so many of the great Saints the mothers and the fathers of the church had no biological children and yet their impact on us we in some ways we have inherited we are their legacy they've passed it passed it on to us and our most important work is the people whose lives we touch So when Sarah's mom uh, passed away, we were unprepared for the outpouring of love and support that would come, like hundreds of posts on Facebook. And over and over and over again, what we heard is that Hallie was my spiritual mother. Not related, not biological, and yet the impact of her life spread vastly beyond anything that she could do with her own hands. And that's God's desire for us. He wants us not to toil, but he wants our lives to bear fruit. And the way that that happens is the relationships. And so maybe God's made you a business owner. What if just as important as the success of your business was the impact on the people that worked for you. Maybe God has made you a stay-at-home parent, and sometimes you feel awkward about that at cocktail parties. What do you do for work? Well, I, I parent my children. What if that may actually have a larger impact on the world than, I don't know, anything Elon Musk is doing? So as we wrap, we are living, friends, in a burned out, exhausted nation that has a poor relationship with work. And I think God wants us to model a different way. And so we do that by remembering we're not in control. We do that by prayerfully working. We do that by sleeping and resting. And ultimately, we remember that God allows us to bear fruit in our lives. We trust in what God's doing in deep and mysterious ways with our lives, and we pay attention to the people around us. So as we close, Holy Spirit, would you come? Lord, as we head toward Monday and the work week, as we head towards the fall, as some of us return from vacation or prepare to, we ask you, Holy Spirit, how are you inviting each of us to engage our work differently in this upcoming season? Lord, would you even highlight one thing from this morning that you want us to take away from this scripture and apply to our lives? I just wanna invite you as we, as we prepare to have communion, as we prepare to leave, God is bringing up something, write it down. And share it with one person on the way out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in a world that's burned out and exhausted, you came that we could have rest. And you invite us to come to you. You say, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. Lord, we thank you that on the cross, you toiled for us, Lord. That you experienced a labor of separation from God so that we could be united with you. So that you could live in us and work through us and bear fruit in the world. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come remembering that your invitation is to come to you and to find rest for our souls, even as we work